Right, dude, it's Mike. How are we doing? <clears throat> no, bad, mate. Not bad at all. Um, just doing this um, a podcast advert for Liam. You know, the Punks and Pubs podcast we're going to uh, uh, yes, yes, yes. email about. What, what do you reckon we, uh, we do for it? Well, I mean, just basically promote all the sites. I mean, you've got the Facebook. Uh, what was it again? The uh, the full? Oh, Facebook.com forward slash uh, The Awkward Punks. Or just... Yeah, you know, you make it awkward by following The Awkward Punks. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, just, really uh, just search on Just The Awkward on Facebook. You'll find us there. Of course, yeah. And you've got YouTube as well. YouTube. And the Awkward Punks on there as well. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Wait, 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 wait. Not now, guys, not now. I mean, that, that, that would be a good one for Instagram. I mean, that's also the Awkward Punks on there. But I need to toilet. Not now. Okay. <laughs> what the hell's he up to, fucking weirdo? Anyway, uh, yeah. I think, you know... Uh, Twitter, yeah. Instagram, and uh, at yeah, the Awkward Punks. Yeah. And if you want the music, you know, get in touch. Yeah, cool. Uh, awesome, man. I'll uh, I'll send this on to Liam, and uh, we'll put, do I put a, uh, play a track after it. What, what do you reckon we do? The awkwards. Why are you looking at me? I got a plan. I think, I think, there's, I think there's only one one we can do here. I got a plan. Ah. Where are you guys? He's not. He's not. Dying. Just, just put him out of misery. I got a plan. Right, cool. Right, I'll, right, I'll do it, dude. See you later. In a bit.
my name is Liam Bird, and this is the Punks and Pops podcast. I hope all is well. If this is the first time that you have downloaded this podcast, welcome. I hope you're all good. Uh, for those people who have done this before, you know what the podcast is about. I sit down in a pub and we chat to people with some affiliation to punk. So before we crack on with this episode, episode 52, uh, let's do a little bit of housekeeping. So some announcements. Punks and Pubs will once again be at the Manchester Punk Festival from April the 24th to the uh, 26th. The lineup is ridiculous this year. Red Sea Radio, the Flatliners, Off of the Heads, Discharge, Random Hand, just to name a few. And because of this, the festival is completely sold out. But that's okay. We're going to try and bring as much of the festival to you as we will go and interview as many of the people on that lineup to bring to your ears so you can hear a slice of Manchester Punk Festival. If you want to go to Manchester Punk Festival, go in 2021. Make sure you follow Manchester Punk Festival. I've said Manchester Punk Festival about five times. Follow them on Twitter uh, because after the festival is finished, usually about two weeks, they release early bird tickets and you can pick up uh, tickets for about 40% off. It's ridiculous. And, uh, And then you can guarantee that you're going next year every year is getting bigger and bigger so uh, go support an independent punk festival like the manchester punk festival so last time i'm saying it second thing we are very proud to say that we will be part of the punks against sweatshop benefit show on the 6th of june at the world famous 100 club in london this show has been put on uh, by the guys who do no swear and punk ethics uh, you can go and listen back actually to an episode that i did episode 45 with jake here who is one of the collective members of Punk Ethics. It's been put together by them and they've kindly invited me to be a part of the show. So Punks in Pubs will be kicking off the event, doing a live panel interview with guests playing later on the lineup. That lineup includes past episode guests Petrol Girls as well as Scottish Punks Oi Polloi and Crass's Stephen Ignorance and more to be announced tickets are a bargain at £15 so go pick up uh, your tickets now you can find a link to get said tickets in the episode description of this podcast or visit at Punks and Pubs on Instagram Twitter and Facebook for links on where to get those tickets. Lastly, uh, we're going to be on a break for the rest of March because of work commitments. So we're taking March off and we will be back on April the 4th with interviews from Teenage Bottle Rocket and Gallows, just to name a couple. So there's something to look forward to, isn't it? Anyway, let's talk about episode 52, an exceptional episode, if I say so, as this is the live recording we conducted last week at the Signature Brew Tap Room and venue in Haggerston. Thank you to all the people who turned up for this. And also thank you to the Lagan who played out the night. Uh, They put on a great set. And as always, a big shout out to the guys and girls at Signature Brew for having us at the venue and for making us feel very welcome. Make sure you go and have a beer at one of their many tap rooms uh, up and down the country now, I think. Uh, But you've not downloaded this episode to hear me talk about people I want to thank. Let's talk about the man I interviewed on that stage, my guest for the evening, a music journalist, author, and all-round good man, Ian Winwood. Uh, for those of you who don't know about Ian's work, he has written for Kerrang, Enemy, Mojo, Q, and Revolver, amongst others. He's also the author of uh, Birth, School, Metallica, Death, but most importantly, 
He is also the author of Smash, Green Day, The Offspring, Bad Religion, No Effects, and the 90s Punk Explosion. That's its fourth title, but from now on we're going to be calling it Smash. It's a great book. Go pick it up wherever you go get your books. So me and Ian jumped on the stage and Ian treated the crown to an hour of pure gold. So what can you expect? Well, Ian sets out telling a story of the time he called the lead singer of Nickelback, uh, Chad Kroger, a cunt in an article for Kerrang! and doubles down by calling him a coward live on stage. Ian explains how the band Motorhead was his come-to-Jesus moment for punk. We discuss going into the circle of mosh pit as we get older and also talk about the stresses that come with working as a freelancer. We, of course, talk about Ian's book, Smash, which features bands such as, like we said in the title there, Offspring, No Effects, Green Day bad religion Uh, so of course we talk about all those bands we also touch on a controversial subject matter of the pedophile and former lead singer of lost prophets ian watkins so expect to hear a few oohs from the audience and there was a couple of technical issues that were out of my hands unfortunately because i wasn't controlling the sound so my mic is low in the recording so i've had to push the gain up in my voice to an inch of its life thankfully ian talks a lot so that's not an issue but your ears adapt very quickly i don't think it's that massively dis- uh, distracting but i know some of you guys who are audio files uh, might pick up on it so apologies for that the biggest issue that we had was that the audio recorder was on pause record not record of the first minute of this interview until the sound man noticed and slammed on the record button so you do miss out on my introduction to the audience introducing myself and ian and also me asking my first question to ian that was ian why do you call the lead singer of Nickelback a cunt? And do you like using the word? We dropped the C-bomb in early. There was also a family of some quite young kids at the side of the stage, which was a bit weird. So apologies to those kids if you're listening who heard the C-word many, many times. So we're going to jump straight into it, uh, where Ian's picking up on my question. So just kind of set the scene. Ian's talking about attending the Nickelback gig, where he had to go and interview the band. The interview didn't go well, and he's now watching the band. I'll leave it there so Ian can tell you the rest of the story. I'll be back after this chat, but until then, enjoy myself and Ian live at the Signature Brutat Room and venue in Haggerston. Enjoy. Basketball hockey arena in Philadelphia, and there's a good 18,000 people there. And uh, the DJ says, coming up, we have... I, I, don't, I should say I'd already interviewed them, and it had not gone terrifically well. The DJ said to the audience, okay, up, in, up next in five minutes, we've got Nickelback. Now, the majority of the crowd cheered. A good number of the crowd didn't do much. And a noticeable minority booed, which I think is not bad going for a band as awful as Nickelback. <laughs> but they, and anyway, they came on and they opened the first song. And there was a guy in the front who had, I can't do this properly because I have a microphone in my hand, but he was raising both middle fingers. And he was really close to Chad Kroger. I have to say, it must have been distracting. But anyway, and at the end of the song, Chad Kroger said to the, 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 uh, the security at the front, I want, the, I want this guy out of there. I want this guy out of here. And I didn't know if he meant thrown out of the venue or just out of his line of sight. Uh, and the security were like, are you are you serious? And he's and yeah, really he was. And he said, you know, if 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 you don't get him out of here, we're going to leave the stage. And I mean, that sounded like I mean, what a deal, you know? Uh, <laughs> but but no, apparently that was not going to happen. So they removed this guy who was exercising his democratic right. Uh, 
and and I didn't I wasn't sure if I was making too much of this and and the photographer with whom I was doing the story who was in the photographer pit at the front came to me after they sat and went I can swear, presumably. Anyway, you've already dropped the C-bomb. He said, fucking hell, did you see that? And so I thought, okay, actually this. So I wrote the piece and I started with this. I set the scene and then I said, for, for anyone not employed with, employed by or enamored of Nickelback, the message is clear. New, new sentence, Chad Kroger, colon, what a cunt. And then it sort of just hung there because there, there was a space between the, the second section. And I filed that thinking, well, there's, there's just no way they're going to print that. This is for Kerrang, I should say. There's just no way on earth they're going to, to print that. And the phone rang. I, I, I imagine it being simultaneously, but it was really quickly after. And it was my features, edit, uh, features editor at the time who, who was, he just couldn't stop laughing. And I went, and he went, that's a, that's a mate. I don't know why everyone's got a comedy London accent all of a sudden. <laughs> he went, he went, he went, that's, oh, that's, that's amazing. I went, you're going to print? He goes, yeah, of course we are, of course we are. So imprint it went. And, um, and they, the band sent me, uh, six big bouquets. I mean, bouquets sort of in steel buckets of, of lilies. Which are, which are funeral flowers, saying, we'll see you when we come to London. Uh, but the thing that really did it is that I then called him a cunt in print again because I was reviewing the singles. So what used to happen, we're going, this is really one for the old timers. If a band, a, a, a band of a certain status came to, to the UK, the record company would release a single and Nickelback did this, and this was sufficiently long ago that um, Kerrang! ran singles reviews. I mean, this seems like, like dispatches <laughs> from a different planet, doesn't it? Uh, and, um, and I wrote it sort of like an open letter to Chad, and I said, oh, yeah, and by the way, I still think you're a cunt. Again, thinking, they're just not going to print that, and again, they did. Uh, and, uh, and so they too, obviously, I didn't go to any of the shows, and this is, again, before some... People had mobile phones, but I don't think I did, and I don't think... There weren't, it wasn't sort of like where you're checking it every, every five seconds. And I remember going with my friend Dan to see West Ham play. They were playing Southampton. That's a totally irrelevant detail. <laughs> and it was so long ago that I went... I got back from the game, and I, I, didn't, I didn't even check my emails. And then I, I woke up the next morning... And there were literally dozens and dozens of messages. Some of them quite obscure, going, oh, my God, are you going to do it? And I was like, well, what's happened? So it turned out that the, the night of the match, uh, Nickelback had played Wembley Arena. Uh, and um, this is before the O2 was built. They played Wembley Arena. And, uh, and I'd been challenged by name to a, to a boxing match for charity by Chad Kroger. Uh, and, and he did this apparently uh, uh, on, from the stage at every date on the tour. So in Newcastle and Sheffield, everywhere. And, um, and so a, rec a response was required from me. Now, the fact is that he was clearly much angrier with me than I was with him. It was all just a bit of fun to me. Uh, but I, I accepted the challenge. And I remember going into the Kerrang! office and they were singing the Rocky theme at me. And, <laughs> and I remember the news editor had, had rung up the, the, the boxing council and found out what it was you needed in order to put on a boxing match. <laughs> and if anybody, any of you want to do it, all you need is a doctor. You don't need a license. You just need a doctor. 
And so I said, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. You know, I come from a family of miners, so I said, well, I'd like the charity to be some kind of mining charity, you know, whatever that might be. And I thought, well, if I'm, I'm going to take my medicine, I better take my medicine. And nothing came of it. So Chad Kroger, and I'm just, may I put this out, Chad? If ever you want to go, buddy, I'm, I'm ready to do this, okay? So, yeah, so, so I, I, so then my takeaway from this is Chad Kroger is a coward, okay? And if he's listening to this, I'm here, buddy, okay? So I'm fine with the word cunt. In answer to the question you asked 15 minutes ago, yeah. I'm fine with it. Growing up from like a proud northern town then, like was swearing quite incorporated in your family? Was it something that you heard quite a lot and you encouraged to use? Or was it something like, if you used it, you get a backhand? I'm not sure. Do any parents encourage their children to swear? Like it's like eating your vegetables. It's something you're, re you're required to do every day. Well, I don't know. My mum was quite filthy mouth. Yeah. I swore she took it as an insult. I was like, well, what the fuck? You're like, you're swearing. Right, okay. Swear. Well, yeah. I, I'm not sure. I think that it was possibly so regular that I didn't notice it or maybe that it didn't actually exist around me he said backtracking furiously because he realizes that his mum is going to listen to this uh, no we were a very uh, church going observant family you know so next question so clearly from your accent you are obviously northern <laughs> did I did, uh, yeah, you no, spotted that did know, you no. okay and, and I am actually from the north as well but I've lost my yeah really I've you have my accent <laughs> so I thought we'd talk about smash avocados to make everyone feel a bit more safe. okay you're like the you're like, you're, you're like the punk band that signs to a major label, that's, that's you know, it. right. I am literally yeah. the Green Day yeah, yeah. Of, of this song. Yeah, that's uh, right. Uh, no, but no, what I want to ask is actually, because you grow up in like a northern town and punk being quite an expressive music form, were you like the Billy Elliot of punk well, in your town? <laughs> <laughs> although, although inter interestingly, in the, the true life Billy Elliot was actually from Barnsley. I'm from Barnsley, by the way, everybody, so... Okay, no, no, no not a lot of love no in the room cheers. for Barnsley. Well, it's not quite the, the backstory that, that, that it seems to be because um, I spent my teenage years in Buckinghamshire. Uh, so, that rough area. That rough area. Yeah. Yes, I was very much the only. That's not quite true. There was me and my friend. That were, he was slightly more of a metalhead than me, and I was slightly more into hardcore punk. Although the words, the world sort of, or punk rock of any kind actually, the world, the words, worlds sort of blended into one another. And a lot of my friends were into psychobilly, but but that was quite a passing fad. But I was very, in hindsight, very lucky. Because what it allowed me to do... I mean, it was still a hell of a schlep to London. It required a lift from Buckingham itself to Milton Keynes and then a train to London and then if the gig was at a club in Hammersmith. So it, it wasn't like it was on my doorstep. You know, it wasn't like you know, living in... Friends here live in St. Albans. It wasn't anything like that. <laughs> it, was still a, it, it was still a production. and It still took a very um, a, a liberal approach to, by, by my mum to say well, I'll pick you up at the train station at half past midnight and there's no mobile phones, yeah. you know, and you're, and you're 15, really. Yeah. Uh, but it was great. And so I think, it, I think that helped because it meant that London was a reality to me because, you know, for better or, or for worse, it's great for us that live, you know, within the circumference of the city. But if you're in, if you're in Barnsley or if you're in Nottingham, a lot of these bands, you know, when the Circle Jerks, for example, 
uh, or the Bad Brains, both of whom I saw as a, as a teenager, when they came to the UK, they didn't play Nottingham and they didn't play Sheffield. Mm. But, of course, they played London. So I think I was very fortunate to to n not be in Barnsley for, for that reason. So were your family quite musically orientated? Was music something they, they wanted to pass on to you? No, they weren't anti-music in any way. But for the first, you know, when my mum and my dad were together up till the point that I was about eight, and again, I'm going to receive hell if I'm misremembering this, I don't remember that we had a, a record player. Uh, now, my mum loved and loves music. I mean, I've taken her to see Green, Green Day numerous times, and she liked Rancid when they were playing with Green Day. So I'm not, I don't want to appear that this is sort of, you know, a house of Radio 4 and silence, because it wasn't anything like that. We just didn't have a record player. We did have, of course, have, have the radio. Uh, and also, I don't have any older brothers or sisters, so nothing was passed down to me by process of osmosis. So I'm not quite sure, but actually, I, I, I am quite sure. I remember being in the car uh, with my mum. It was a big, a big factor in my life. I remember being in the car with my mum, and uh, I should look at the audience more, uh, being, in the crowd, being in the crowd with my mum, and I was 10, uh, and the song Motorhead, by Motorhead, from the, if, and if anybody, anybody hasn't heard this, this album, and you like sort of punk rock and roll, the, the live album No Sleep Till Hammersmith. Uh, came on and it had crashed into the. It was the, the lead-off single from No Sleep Till Hammersmith, and it it entered the charts at number six. and And this came on the radio on the charts Sunday Sunday evening chart rundown, and it was like the scene in The Wizard of Oz where everything turns into color. It was just like, I mean, really. And I'm I'm not being hyperbolic here. It really was the moment where my life changed, you know, and is very much the reason I'm sat here talking to you tonight. So that was the sort of um, red pill moment, I believe yeah. the alt-right people would say. Where, where was your first love then? Was it with music or was it with the written words? It was with both, actually. And again, another sort of pivotal moment. I used to have a, I used to have a paper round. Uh, I'd sort of got promoted from that where, where I, I would look after the rounds of all the boys and girls that were coming in. So I'd have to get in slightly earlier than them and sort out all the magazines uh, and put them in the, in the right and sort out all the magazines. So it was, it was in a little sort of underground bunker below uh, a branch of w, the branch of W.H. Smith's in Buckingham. And this magazine came in one day called Kerrang! And this was um, so long ago that Kerrang! was a fortnightly magazine at the time. And, what, you know, and it, was for the, it was for the shop. It wasn't for the paper round, so it didn't have to be dispatched out. And when, the, when all the paper boys and girls had gone out with their rounds, I then sort of had an hour or so just to make sure there were no problems until the manager came in and opened the shop. So I had an hour every, every Wednesday to read this magazine. And it, it, it suited me perfectly because it wasn't, it isn't a metal magazine. People that don't read it tend to think that it is. And, and of course it does cover that. But the, the title of the magazine is Anonymatopoeia. It's Kerrang! It's what happens when you strike a guitar with force. 
So they would cover punk bands and they would cover uh, uh, metal bands and they would cover all sorts of stuff. And, it, and I just thought, well, this is cool. And again, my mum comes into the story. I remember saying to her, oh, I'd really like to write for that as a job. Like, you know, that's the thing that people do. And she said, well, you know, people do it. Why, why can't it be you? So I remember taking... Um, and I went to a secondary modern school, so it was either, you know, you did metal work, uh, metal work to, to, to be trained to go to a factory, or you did typing to, to become a secretary. And I took typing in the hope that I could one day be, not just be a music journalist, but actually write for Kerrang! And I was the only lad in the class, I remember that. And, um, and I became sort of like the, the, the class mascot, which wasn't quite the look that I was aiming for, but never mind. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, and that's sort of where it came from. And again, the London thing is quite important because it made the city more accessible in my mind. You know, it wasn't this giant leap. I was beginning to figure out its geography and how to use the tube. And I knew when I read the magazine, I'd been to some of these venues. It, sort of, it was still a giant leap because I didn't know, I didn't know anyone in the city uh, that was connected. This really was like being on the other side of the TV screen, wondering how you got a job on TV. So I, I didn't have an in at all, but it, I, w I recognized that I could exist in this place. So do you remember the time where actually you went to a gig and thought, I could write about this? Like, I'm, I'm noticing a lot more than what probably the average Joe next to me is noticing. No, I don't think I ever, I don't think I ever did that. I think that the thing that I wanted to do was... Um, interview people and, and actually to this day the least my least favorite part of the job is reviewing people's music although although I do it and I do it happily there is a part of me that thinks it's not a very creative thing to do I'm sort of pat sitting in judgment on something someone else has created and I'm forced to have opinions at, at great at too fast a speed that I'm not thinking as much about this as they are when they've created it so I, I find that what I did think I could do was write about musicians, which I think is more interesting perhaps than writing about music. And I remember coming, when I came to London to live, and I read in, uh, again, Kerrang, that a, a metal band called Exodus, and, and who were a bit of a footnote, aside from the fact that Kirk Hammett from Metallica, that was the band that he was in before he, he, he was recruited by Metallica, and with Metallica's success, Exodus had got a major label deal, and, and I read that they were in London um, recording an album, and they named the studio, so I found out where the studio was, again, before the internet. I'm not sure how I did this, but I, I did it, and uh, it, was, it was a really freezing January morning, and I arrived at the studio at 9 o'clock in the morning, and I learned a really important lesson that day, which is that people in the music industry don't start work at 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, <laughs> So I went back, I remember going to have a full English, a, a greasy spoon, and going back a couple of hours later. And I just said to the, the people at reception, I'd left my message with the people at reception, and they'd let the band know that I was hoping to break into music journalism, and would they give me an interview? And they agreed to, and they gave me an hour of their time, and I came, I came home, uh, and I typed up this, this feature that, that I'd written. It seems strange, I can't imagine myself being so proactive anymore. 
but I, but I, I, wrote, I, I typed up this, this feature that I'd written and then hand-delivered it round to all the, 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 the rock magazines in London. And there were about six, at the ti- six of them at the time. And that's how, that was my in. And I, that's how I started. It took me a while to get onto Kerrang. Yeah. Uh, but that, that's how I started. I, start, I, start, I started my apprenticeship in the minor leagues. But I was a, a published music journalist. And that was all I ever wanted to be. So from from the little insight into this, me and Ian have been emailing each other back and forth to try and get this arranged. And one of the things that Ian told me about was the fact that he went into an agnostic front show <laughs> and that you went into the pit for the first time. Well, yeah. For a very long time. Well, what happened was, it was sort of like a muscle memory. My fiance Ruth, stand up, no, I'm only joking. No, I know, it's just a joke. Uh, <laughs> My fiance Ruth Foo, we call her. She was. Uh, we live in Camden, and we live very close to the underworld. If everybody knows the underworld, and we, right, and we walk, and we walk past, and um, and I've seen some amazing punk shows at the underworld. I saw the Rancid, and out come the Wolves show, which was one of the wildest shows I've ever seen. I saw Social Distortion down there. So some really, really important moments. But I'd not been there. I mean, I've lived in Camden for about thirteen years, and I've not been to the underworld once in all that time and i walked past and i looked up we, we were, we were it was, this was in november i think and, we, and i looked up and it said agnostic front uh and i thought i remember agnostic well not that i remember them i hadn't forgotten them they were a band. But, but, but i thought oh my god agnostic front are playing actually a little fun fact for everybody here vinnie stigma the guitarist in agnostic front was the person that invented or created the word mosh without vinnie stigma there would be no mosh Okay, it would just be plain old slam dancing. Uh, and I said, oh, I'm, I, I, I might go to this. It was in two nights' time. And I said, oh, I, I, might, I might go. And Ruth said, oh, can I come along? And I said, I'm, 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 not, I'm, not, sure you'd, I'm not sure you'd like it much. Uh, and I went, but it's okay. Yeah, okay, I've got, you know, of course you can. So I emailed, this is, this is terrible. This is a real let them eat cake moment. You, you don't buy a ticket, you email the PR and they put you on the guest list. I'll, I'm really going to be up against the wall when the revolution comes. Uh, and they, anyway, you got on the guest list. So we went, and it, for everyone that's, that's been to the underworld, and anyone that, at home that's listening that hasn't, to get sorted to the stage, you have to go down in numbers. It's a really, really badly designed club. And we sort of walked down the, walked down the, uh, the, the steps in front of the stage. And we were sort of... I just got the sense that we were within range, you know? Uh, and Ruth works in punk... I mean, Ruth knows a lot more about punk rock than she did before we started dating. But, uh, but, th- but this was the first uh, proper, proper gig. You know, there was no stage barrier or anything like that. And, um, and I, we were stood waiting for them to come in. I just thought, hang on, we, we might be in range here. So I said, look, let's just take two or three steps back. And they came on and it just went off, you know, like it, like an old-fashioned punk gig. And I just looked at it and I thought, I mean, I'm 48 years old. I'm soon to turn 49. And I looked at it and I thought, oh, that looks like fun. I remember that. <laughs> so I said, you know, hold, hold my coat, hold my bag. <laughs> in I went. Uh, and it was great. It was fantastic. Because anybody that's been in a mosh pit knows it, it only looks violent. There is a code of conduct in there. But I was back in the game all of a sudden. I was a younger man, you know? And, um, and then I thought, oh, I used to stage dive too. I'm going to try one of those. 
Now, I failed. I failed in this because younger men were, 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 were getting up there with a lot. I, you know, my knees were hurting. I couldn't quite get on the stage with the speed that I would like. However, so I failed in that endeavor, but a stage diver did land on my head. So, so I think that I'm, am I still punk? Punk as fuck. Of course you are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, because what I'm interested in is like when you when you first take that jump into a circle, because like you said, yeah. it does look violent. Like yeah. you see it, you see these fucking skinheads running around, <laughs> yeah. big butch fucking people. Yeah. And if you like me, you're six foot nothing and weigh nothing. If you like you, Ian, you're, you're five. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nothing. Uh, but, like, <laughs> <laughs> but then you jump in, and all of a sudden you realise there is actually this code of. There is a real code of conduct. Yeah, you don't punch with your, your face. I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but you punch with the palms of your hands. You know, it, it's, it's play fighting, yeah. you know? Someone goes down, not in the normal sense of the word, someone falls down, I should say. You pick them, right back you up. Pick them straight back up and everybody knows that. And if they don't know that, they're taught it very quickly, yeah. you know. So, so when was your first circle pit? Then when was your first mosh pit? Oh, I'm, I, I precede circle pit. Circle pits are for the young folk. <laughs> I, re, I, I remember. I remember. So, does anybody? Everybody know that? Oh, does anybody know the band, the Circle Jerks? Right. Okay. So, great. The Circle Jerks, and they're playing actually this year at, at the Electric Ballroom. One of the great original LA punk bands, sort of from like Black Flag. In fact. Yeah. The singer, Keith Morris, was Black Flag's first singer. So legit. And they came over in uh, 87. So I was, God, I was 16. Oh, Christ. And I went to see them at this really scuzzy old club called the Clarendon uh, in, uh, in Hammersmith. And um, I, I was right at the front. And they started, and they came on. And I found myself on the stage and the music acting, they hadn't actually started playing yet. And I'd never done a stage dive before. And fortunately, they then started playing. So at least I had some music. And the crowd was packed, you know. There was no climbing off down off the stage. There was no going into the wings. And I, remember, I thought, well, I'm, I'm just going to have to do this. I'd seen other people do it at other gigs. And I just, and my, my technique was good, I have to say. I sort of, lo- I'm not going to do it now. Would you mind if I staged I'd on you just to show the people what I would <laughs> on? I did. And I sort of twisted and lifted my exit legs in the air and sort of you land on your, the, the side of your back on the crown. And I remember this as if it were yesterday, that exhilarating moment. And I thought, I am in midair. I am in midair at a punk show. Now, you don't, you can't really do this anymore because almost all shows have barriers. Yeah. It's really, it's really t- changed the dynamic of shows. And the re- some of the reasons for that are good, obviously. I sound a little bit like a football supporter that's bemoaning the lack of, t- of terracing <laughs> these days. But it, it was a much more direct connection between the audience and the band when half of the audience were on the stage at any given time. Having worked in the music industry then now, and, and someone, someone like myself who was obsessed about punk music 
and had and, and, and want to work in that industry. Yeah. And music journalism for me was like the holy grail. This is something I want to do. But what is the most common misconception for you? By a country mile, do you get to go backstage? And the answer is yeah, I, I do. And all I can report from backstage is that nothing happens back there. It is a place of work. The band might be in the dressing room sort of preparing. And it is, it is, a, it is a working place. It is, um, you know, especially, especially at, at larger shows, you have a crew whose job it is. So a band comes off, the main support comes off at 8.30, the headline band are on at 9. There is a lot of people doing a lot of very uh, time-sensitive time work. And you're not, you're not really welcome there. Yeah. You know, you, I mean, you're tolerated, but I don't really have a place there. So what it is, it's a lot of standing in corridors. Wherever the interesting, fun stuff happens, it could be on the bus. That's that you might find it on there, or it might be back at the hotel. Uh, I think people generally think that bands on tour are that. I don't necessarily think they always think that it's like the dirt, like Motley Crue's The Dirt, but I think they think it's sort of this, like a bit, a bit like life on a pirate ship, and it's not really because it is incredibly hard work to be a, a, a touring band. You know, you can have your fun, but if you have too much fun, you will burn yourself out. And also, time, you know, times are changing as well. For some good reasons and for some perhaps not so good reasons, uh, bands don't really want to get fucked up all the time anymore. It seemed, it's seen as a bit lame, you know, to, be, to celebrate being... Uh, debauched all the time. But even when it was sort of the currency, when it was considered great to be drunk all the time, and, and for the record, I'd, I never considered it great to be drunk all the time, bands were never quite as, as, uh, as, as feral and, and as uncontrolled as, as, as people imagined them to be. And perhaps as music journalists would have had you believe they were either. I mean, obviously, you're trying to sell, so you're obviously going to overhype. And... Uh, yeah, 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 I mean, you sort of are. I mean, my, my sort of technique as a journalist is I try to take you back behind the smoke and mirrors a little bit, but you run the risk of destroying the mystique yeah. somewhat, you know? So it's a, it's, it's a slightly tricky, tr- tr- tricky maneuver. So 27 years ago, uh, you stated that punk rock was, was going to die. And then oh, I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How did you? How did, later, how, how did you? You wrote a book about it. How did you? How did you know that? <laughs> did, how did you research. know that? All oh, right, okay. Yeah, um, I, I so did. And then you wrote a book called Smash, which talks about the punk in '94 and yeah. how it had its uh, revival. Well, so you see, my my um, I, I always had my finger on the pulse, Liam. You know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember a, a couple of things happened in in '93. Uh, I think it was 93 I wrote that. Yeah. Uh, but a couple of, yeah, a couple of things happened in 93. I went to see Bad Religion. I assume we know Bad Religion. I went to see Bad Religion at, the, at, the, at what was the, the, the town and country club in Kentish Town. And there, Alistair, were you at that show? No, okay. So there were about, it's my friend Alistair in the front stand-up, and, and, um, <laughs> and there were about, so the venue holds about 2,000 people, and I would say there might have been 600 in there. So that wasn't great. And then I went to see, that same summer, I went to see, um, and actually within, a, within weeks, I went to see 
no effects, supported by the offspring at a venue down by the Angel in Islington called the Powerhouse, which is no longer there. And that, and that was a small club. It probably, it probably wasn't much bigger than this. And that was half full as well. And I just thought, I just don't think this has, I just don't think this is, is, is prospering. Mm. Uh, I, I was writing for a metal magazine at the time. My time in the majors, minor, minor leagues of music journalism, I was consistently writing for metal mags, which were, were never a, a very good fit for me. Because I was always banging on about these punk bands and making references to them, one of my editors said, look, why don't you write a piece about about this, about this music you're always talking about. So I did, and so I put social distortion in it, and the offspring, and, and bad religion. And then <laughs> I, I concluded by saying, yeah, this scene's probably dying. I think this is going to die. Uh, and put that to bed and thought, well, you know, it, it, was, it was a good ride while it lasted. And then the following year, of course, uh, which is the, 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 what I write about in my book, Smash, Green Day released um, Dookie and The Offspring released Smash, particularly The Offspring, because I think The Offspring tend to get overlooked. I like Green Day more than The Offspring, but I like The Offspring as well. The Offspring tend to get overlooked in this. The Offspring put an album called Smash, uh, put out an album called Smash, and both of those albums went multi, multi, multi-platinum in the US. It, was, it wasn't Green Day that did it. And, and it's, it, what's important to remember is that before that, no American punk band had ever broken the mainstream. They'd never even broken the Billboard Top 100. The Ramones didn't do it, Husker Du didn't do it, X didn't do it, The Replacements didn't do it, none of them did it. This was brand new that this was happening. And it was Green Day and The Offspring, and, and, and I think that's important to remember. Um, and, and I mentioned that it's not just a musical thing because The Offspring did it on an independent label. They, yeah. did, it, they did it on a label called Epitaph, which was a small uh, uh, a label run by a guy called Brett Gurevitz, who uh, is and w- was and is the guitarist from Bad Religion. Uh, and really, it was Bad Religion's house label. But they released other bands as well, No Effects among them. Uh, and Rancid as well, actually. And they put out this album, Smash, that they thought might sell maybe 70,000 copies, you know, tops. And the, the LA... So the Offspring are from Southern California. They're from Orange County. Green Day are from uh, Oakland, uh, or the East Bay, at least. Um, and, um, and Green Day were on Warner Brothers. You know, they, they'd really done their time in the in the punk rock leagues. You know, they were on Lookout Records, they played Gilman Street. So I'm not denying their authenticity by any measure, I'm not. But now they're on a major label, they had that infrastructure behind them. The Offspring did not, yeah. you know? Uh, the Offspring's press officer in the UK uh, was, was someone I knew that ran her operation from her mum's back bedroom, you know, in, an, in a bedroom she shared with a sewing machine. This wasn't major label stuff. And K-Rock, the radio, American radio, Los Angeles radio station K-Rock put the song Come Out and Play on, on their playlist. And it was the first time that a, a, a punk rock song had been played outside of specialist shows, outside Rodney on the Rock. And suddenly the ball started rolling. Brett Gurevitz had to remortgage his house in order to pay the pressing costs, in order to keep supply with demand. Fat Mike from No Effects, uh, Jim from Pennywise, all, both Epitaph bands were coming down and helping to load these albums into trucks. With this hand-to-mouth operation, they, they, they became 
until quite recently, the best-selling independent rec uh, record of all time in the United States. Uh, no, worldwide, actually. Uh, that's now been overtaken by Adele, but it's still the best-selling rock album, yeah. and it's a punk rock album. And I think my reason for writing that book, for writing the book, was because I saw this happen. After predicting the death of the scene, I saw it rise like a phoenix from the flame. And I remember my reaction to it. It wasn't as, as sometimes it is where you think, oh my God, I like those when they, were pop when they weren't popular. I can't believe that it's become popular. I just thought this was the greatest thing that, I, that, that had ever happened, you know? Um, because even, even the, 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 the scene in Seattle, which was similar, um, but, not, but it was clearly influenced by punk, yeah. but I don't yeah. think it was punk. Um, all of those bands broke on major labels. Nirvana broke on a major. Soundgarden broke on a major. Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, all of those groups that broke big did so on a major. And this, is, this was happening on an indie, and, and No Effects got a gold record, and Rancid went platinum. Uh, you know, it, and, and I just thought this was the most amazing story. In about 2016, the 40th anniversary of the original punk explosion, uh, it seemed to me that I couldn't turn on BBC Four without finding a documentary about 76. Uh, m m most of the details in it were wrong, I thought. You know, it was like, uh, you know, b uh, rubbish was piling up on the streets. No, that happened in 1979. And it was all these kind of tired old, uh, you know, cliches. Yeah. And, and, and I just thought... I don't think anyone's really given this story the credit that it deserves. No one's, no one's written a book uh, or really given these bands their due. I, and especially not at the time. Sort of what happened was that the music press was so exhausted by, um, uh, by ex expending so much energy on, on, on what we might loosely term grunge. Nirvana were the good guys. Yay, Pearl Jam with the bad guys, boo, and how, and how fucking ridiculous does that now seem? Uh, and, you know, these are good guys, these are bad guys, these are saviors. That by the time Green Day and The Offspring broke, they were sort of exhausted and didn't want to go through that again. And the best, I mean, The Offspring did virtually no press. The best that, and Green Day did very little, actually. And the best they sort of managed was sort of an affectionate ruffle of the hair. Like, oh, you know, you, you young folks, bless you, you're sort of doing your little punk thing. And so Green Day did get genuine acclaim and well-deserved acclaim 10 years later with American Idiot. But a number of the bands, I thought, just didn't, hadn't been given their due. And I, I think it's as good, if not better, than any of the other punk music that I've heard. So that was why I did it. <laughs> your book you speak about how bad religion plays shows of like 3,000 people in LA why did people not give a fuck and do you think that's still the case now about in the music industry where you still work do you still think people see punk as still this oh it's something that was there and it's still not now like just let people have it like there's, there's no there's no worth in it because like there's bands now like idols for instance bands who I feel are 
really pushing punk industry into the mainstream and people are starting to take notice. Like, there's loads of bands like Idols who are just as good as Idols, but just not getting recognition. Yeah, I mean, you might know a little bit more about this than I do. I mean, Idols seem to be, in the way that Gallows were, although Idols are selling many more records, and they don't seem to have come from a, a, a scene particularly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, you know, they're, they're a punk band, but they're not part of a scene. I think what happened with Bad Religion and, and also what is happening again is that it is this scene that exists without the permission of anyone else. Uh, you know, and you're right, in, 2000 and, in 1993, Bad Religion were playing the Hollywood Palladium, which is, you know, almost 5,000 people and filling it with Green Day as their support. You know, and and the major labels were paying no attention to it. You know, and and sort of it, they were sort of victims of their own success in their way. They 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 weren't really in the market for for anyone else's approval. And I think that's probably the case again. You know, uh, again I've got I've got to give some some love to Kerrang because they consistently do write about these bands. You know, I I've I've interviewed you know Bad Religion numerous times for Kerrang. But elsewhere, no, no one gives a shit. But, we, but the people that like it do, and that's all that matters, you know? So do you feel like there, there is, because obviously you're so entrenched in, in this punk industry, uh, what a part. I know. I'd like to say, where's my girlfriend bringing me? My <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, do, do you still think that people see punk as still the 70s ide- like, idea of what punk is? Oh, actually, yeah, you've reminded me of something, of something actually that I, that I did want to say. I did a I did a piece for the Telegraph recently, uh, and you know how punk is that writing for the Telegraph, <laughs> uh, where I, where I, I nominated the the fifty most essential punk albums. I was deluged with comments, most of them negative, I have to say, and I was fine with that. That was not really a problem, but I noticed that people overwhelmingly believed that punk and punk rock, and there is a slight distinction between the two, existed from 1976 to Tops 1979, and that anything after that was invalid. Uh, And that's just not true. It's just simply not true. And it's strange, because no one else, no other genre of music that I can think of is subject to that kind of thing. No one says, oh my God, Country music ended in 1962. Anything after that's not country music. You know, or even metal, which is its, you know, its closest neighbor. Hip-hop doesn't get it. Rhythm and blues, soul. It just doesn't happen. I don't know why it happens with punk. Uh, and, and I took great care to, to include a, a range of albums. You know, up to stuff released last year. So Fiddler were in there, for example. Uh, as well as, you know, The Bangers. As well as Nevermind the Bollocks and London Calling and so on. Uh, but no, they weren't having it. I think that, that people, of a, of a, I think people who aren't paying attention, Liam, uh, are saying, oh yeah, that, that's, that's just invalid after that point, which is ludicrous. But if you want to get right down to it, it's actually really, really insulting as well. They might not necessarily mean to be insulting, but they are. What they're saying is everyone in this room that's, that showed up tonight to, to, to talk about and we haven't talked about 1976 yeah, punk. Yeah. We haven't talked about that original stuff. You're wrong. You're wasting your time. You've made a mistake. What I know from having seen, oh, I don't know, The Roots, 
1978 is that it, it ended when Sid Vicious died, you know, and it's just not true. I mean, because for me, like, punk side, when I realized what the fuck no effects were, like, that's right. when I discovered punk, and then I backtrack and then discover, oh, there's this band called the Sex Pistols, the Romans. Right, okay. Or, and so what, uh, and then uh, that, that was also punk. So, yeah. Like, punk for me was the 94 breakout of punk. Right, uh, so yeah, right. I wanted to say that. The 70s was a punk movement. For me, it was like, well, you're talking shit because that's not my punk. Well, that, I mean, that, that aspect is particularly galling because, you know, punk, the, origi- the original punks should have, should have remembered that their music was dismissed at the time that it happened. So for them to then rep- repeat that uh, mistake by saying, oh, yeah, that's not punk... It, it was, and it is, and and uh, you know, you mentioned no effects, especially, specifically, the idea that no effects are, are, are not a punk band is just ludicrous. It's ludicrous. So, for yourself as a music journalist, because obviously music has changed, and obviously journalism has changed, because yep. anyone in this room now could go online and rate yep. that Liam's a dickhead, and and Liam's a very smart. Amazing man. <laughs> and I might be factually correct, but it doesn't mean it's true. But, <laughs> but, but how, how have you taken that? Because I've, re- I've read a lot of the stuff that you've done for The Telegraph and I've read the stuff that you've done for Krang, and this one in particular was very hostile. You could have particularly gone over if the kids are still there and literally pissed on them, and you would have gone less angry. Yeah, they were, they were, they were, yeah, they were really aggrieved about it. <sighs> what do I think about it? I don't think much about it, to be honest. It, it doesn't bother me, and I t- tend to find it amusing uh, because I find it peculiar. I don't mind, obvi- I mean, hopefully, obviously, I don't mind that people disagree, but there were, there were sort of... What, the, only, but the only thing about it that did bother me is that, uh, uh, that a number of people assumed that I was writing the piece in bad faith, yeah. you know? And I wasn't. I, I wrote it sincerely. This was honestly what I thought the album should be, okay? I wasn't, I wasn't doing it to provoke. I wasn't doing it to disrespect the reader, this is what I thought, and that aggravated me a little bit. Um, it is a lot easier, so I'm 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 fine with criticism, and I'm even fine with hostility, if it is reasoned, you know. Um, but I'm also fine with people being abusive and utterly negative, because I just find it kind of, or I try to find it, I should say, funny, really. So, but it is sort of. And, and you sort of have to break it down. If someone is hiding behind a pseudonym and in giving you, you abuse, that, I don't think that's really a fair fight, you know? But I do, I'm not, I'm not above, and, and, and if I do interact with people, and I, I should say it's, it's weird writing for The Telegraph because it, its politics are not my own. But there, are present, there is presently much more punk rock in The Telegraph than there is in Kerrang, okay? Uh, you know... On Tuesday, I wrote a piece about the time the KLF and Extreme Noise Terror ambushed the Brit Awards. Uh, I'm writing a piece about the interrupters for The Telegraph. Next Saturday in the paper, there's a piece about the Pistols. It is, personally speaking, a great writing gig. So it, it isn't perhaps as strange as it, as, as, as it looks. Um, I mean, I don't only write about punk, and I assume pe- the people here don't only listen to punk. Mm. Uh, I wrote a piece about the, the death of Neil 
Peter Neil Pert, the drummer in Rush, a few weeks, weeks ago. And the comments on that were really, really lovely because yeah. I worked quite hard on it. And, and I mean, I, I, it was quite difficult to judge because the man had just died. Uh, and the response to that was heartening. So, it, again, it would be completely wrong to suggest that the comments are, are, are entirely negative. They, but they were. The only, one, the only one that was worse was I wrote a piece about Billy Bragg for The Telegraph. I interviewed Billy Bragg, and that got 188 comments, every single one of which was negative. <laughs> so something that we do have in common is that I used to work uh, as a freelancer like yourself. I used to work on the Radio 1 Punk Rock show, and then I ended up becoming... a a freelancer making uh, documentaries, and then through that, I, I ended up, um, my career didn't go in the same path where, whereas your has been successful. And something that I found was my own mental health was really difficult with dealing with the idea of rejection, whereabouts you kind of, you do something whereas everyone's going, that's fantastic, that's amazing, in your peership. And they're the people you respect, and all of a sudden you're like, well, why am I getting work? What's going on with that? And that really played with my own mental health. And this is really why this podcast has come to fruition. Yeah, you were saying, yeah. Yeah. So it came to fruition because I was just at my lowest ebb. And fortunately, my, my partner who's over there who kind of said, do something about what, what you're good at and, and talk to people about people that you're passionate about. And I'm interested for you as a freelancer who has dealt with the same industry as me, where it can be quite cutthroat. Whereabouts you think you're onto a good thing and all of a sudden the, the rug is pulled under and you lose a lot of money and, and then all of a sudden the thing that you had planned has disappeared. How have you dealt with that as a freelancer? Well, I've been quite fortunate uh, because when I started at Kerrang, very, very quickly, uh, I guess liking what I did, they put me on, on a retainer, which meant that I got a certain amount of money every week whether I wrote or not. And if I exceeded that amount i would be paid the difference so that although it's freelance it's guaranteed it's a wage yeah. you know so that was and that and that lasted until the time that 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 i co-wrote my my first book so it's only quite recently that i've actually really been properly freelance um it is it's cold out here you know um even though I've, I've, I'm, I'm making a success of it, it, it's cold. And it's cold for a couple of reasons. And perhaps, anyway, and it is part of the gig economy. Don't get me wrong. Maybe there are people in here that, 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 that work in, the, in a similar way. Um, my, Ruth and I went to, to California over, over Christmas. And um, the music industry sort of shuts down in December. There are a few albums coming out, so it had been something of a slow month in December, and I hadn't got anything on the docket for January. And I sort of knew that it would probably be okay, but I didn't know that for sure. And it is, it is, it is stressful. It is a stressful... I'm not saying it is as stressful. In fact, I'm sure it is not as stressful as working in, 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 for a zero-hours contract in, in, a, in a parking warehouse and really not knowing how much work you've got because perhaps, for whatever reason, your options are very limited. Um, but it's not wholly dissimilar from that. And you raised a good point as well. I mean, I'm, 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 at the moment, this Telegraph gig is quite recent. You know, it's, it's less than a year old. And I, I, I almost can't 
keep up with the amount of work that I've got, which is a, a, a great position to be in. But things change, and they change very quickly. All it will take is, uh, and this has happened to me before, for an editor to move to a different position, and the new editor doesn't like what you do so much. Or, you know, it's, I guess it's like a football manager likes his own players. You don't have, you know, you, you're not on the inside track anymore. And another big problem is that people uh, on the inside, so commissioning editors, and I'm sure for the case of the people that, that you were pitching to when you were pitching you know, your radio uh, documentaries that we were talking about, your podcast documentaries, they don't know what it's like or they have forgotten or may have never known what it's like on the outside. You know, and that you know, you need to you need to earn a living, mm. uh, and I find that they sometimes can be a bit blasé about that. Um, how it's impacted on my own mental health, which has not always been great, it's difficult to say. But at the same time, I do quite like the excitement of it. But that's quite easy for me to say because at the moment, it's working for me. They offered me the office, offered me the job. They said I'd better take. Um, so something that I, I, we're going to start wrapping up soon because we, we've got a fantastic band called the, uh, the Lagan coming up soon. I don't know if that was actually the band who are whooping there. <laughs> but uh, I want to quickly talk about like, your next projects. Okay. Um, and I know you said this publicly, so I hope you don't, hope you don't mind. No, I don't. I don't mind it. at all. So you've spoken about, wanted to talk about Ian Watkins, the paedophile uh, from Lost... Oh, there's an ooh there. Yeah, um, <laughs> we've lost the room. Who, who was the lead singer of the Lost Prophets and the band Lost Prophets themselves. Why in particular are you interested in that project? And how difficult is it for you as a journalist to know the lines whereabouts you, you might possibly cross whereabouts it could upset some people, especially family members who may have been affected by that? Right. Well, I mean, one thing is it's not really my business to wonder who it's going to accept. It's my business to, to, to just do a, 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 as good a job I can in good faith. That's, that's really my only concern because that's the only thing for which I'm responsible. Also, it's a bit of a dead end, this limb, because the, it, the project's dead. Uh, because no one wants to touch no, it. No, it's too, it's too grisly. Um, and also, I think, I think perhaps it's not something that I necessarily want to write about anymore. Okay. I, I was, I, the Lost Prophets were, were, although I didn't greatly care for the music, the Lost Prophets were, were a band that I saw become popular on the inside. Uh, I, was, I was very close to it. Uh, and they were just six working-class lads from Wales who had been friends since they were literally toddlers in some cases, certainly from very young children. And, you know, they, they got, you know, they got 
top line management. They got a major label deal. They got a gold album in the States, which almost no British bands do. You know, on, only, only them, uh, the Arctic Monkeys and the Muse, I think, have done it in recent years. I, I, there could be more, but not off the top of my head. And Ian was, was just this lovely young man. I don't, I don't, I don't and the band don't believe that, that, that this had happened yet. Yeah. And then this just this awful thing happened. There is an aspect of journalism that the worse something is, the better it is for a journalist. So there is that part of it. But I was also interested in the fact that obviously primarily the victims of Ian Watkins' crimes are the children. Okay, and, and in one case, the baby. I mean, you know, this, yeah. he, he attempted to rape a one-year-old child and may have done so. The video evidence is inconclusive. Obviously, that is the victims. But also made victims were his bandmates as well. Uh, they've had their legacy totally destroyed. Um, you know, if, if, if one of them is on a plane and you fall into a conversation with someone and they say, a stranger, and they say, oh, what do you do? And they say, oh, I'm a musician. And they say, oh, anything I might have heard of. You can't say in case they may have heard of it, you know? Yeah. That, 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 those songs will never be played on the radio again. No one will ever. I mean, in a way, the most punk rock thing in the world you could do is wear a Lost Prophets T-shirt, <laughs> you know? No one, no one will ever wear a Lost Prophets yeah. shirt before. They were deluged on social media by people saying, I know, I know you did it. I hope your kids get raped, you know? Uh, it, it, it really impacted... Um, I, I'm, I'm sure he won't mind me mentioning it because he's agreed to speak with me about it. I'm writing a book about... Uh, I'm going to soon be writing a book about music and mental health uh, for Faber and Faber, which I think will be called Damaged. Uh, and, and the only carryover from this original idea is that Stuart Richardson, who is, was the basis in The Lost Prophets... Uh, who, you know, and this is a, a, a guy, his father used to take him on the picket line during the miners' strike. If he had known that Ian was doing this stuff, he would have pulled his head off of his shoulders, clean off. You know, there would have been no discussion. He would have, I, 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 I believe he would have caused him serious, perhaps even fatal harm. Uh, you know, his, 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 his mental health was terribly affected. You know, he went into this st suffering post-traumatic stress disorder. So that was sort of my angle, that, 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 that this corruption of something that was such a beautiful and lovely story of these great kids that had really, really got lucky and really, and really I was so pleased for them when it was happening. And then literally the worst thing that you can imagine happening happened. And journalistically, I think that's a, that's a hell of a story. I, I, I mean, I, I feel in the world where as people are obsessed with other people's, um, like, backstory, yeah. I, I feel there is a story to tell. And I do feel it's an interesting story. It is a hard story, I think, for people to listen well, to. Well, par parts of it are hard, Yeah, you know? Um, but it's strange, you know? I go, I go to visit my mum in Barnsley, and I get off the train at Wakefield, and the prison in which Ian is, is housed and will be possibly until he dies. I'm not sure he's getting out. Yeah. And I look at it and, and think, oh, right, he, you know, he's in there. And, obvi and I have letters from him, you know, and, and he's... So you had letters from I have, him? I, I, have, I have, yeah, I have two letters at home from him. And he still doesn't really understand what, what he's in there for. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's very strange. Obviously, not many of us know, you know, mm. possibly the second most egregious paedophile aside from Jimmy Savile, uh, and let alone would have considered him, considered him a friend. So this might seem like a strange thing that I'm saying, but, but from this position, it is quite difficult to separate the person that he was from the person that he's become. 
I've not got that straight in my mind. Um, but you know, but but I haven't been to visit him or anything like that. But yeah, it, it's it's just the strangest story. We'll end it. No, not really. We're not going to end that fucking misery. You're going you're gonna to you, you're you're finish with a song here. Is this how we're going to end this? Uh, no, why won't actually end it was the cheeriest thing. Because, like I said, we've been emailing each other. And you went to Gilliman Street. Oh. And you went to the fucking, like, the, the mecca, I think, for all punks of, like, 94. And you went there and you experienced it yourself. How did you find it? Did you find it like people looking at you going... What the fuck are you doing? Well, you, you'd sort of... So for anyone that doesn't know, Gil, Gilman Street, 924 Gilman Street, known to friends as Gilman. Uh, and um, they, uh, it, it, Gilman, Gilman is in Berkeley. It's in a, re, uh, a residential neighborhood in Berkeley. And it used to be a canning factory. It's bigger than this, but not a great deal bigger than this. Uh, and... Um, and it was opened on New Year's Eve 1987 with money from, uh, seed money from a, a, a punk rock magazine called Maximum Rock and Roll. Uh, and, and with the exception of a few weeks or a couple of months in the 80s, it has remained open. And it is the most, I think it's the most, the world's most ideal, uh, world's most important, uh, punk club. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know, but more than CBGBs, yeah, yeah. more than the Roxy. Club. Yeah, more than any of these. And there are certain things that you need to do to go to Gilman, or not do, actually. As you go in the door, there is, there is a list of commandments that you will see right in front of you. And I have them on my phone, and it is no drink, no drugs, no fucked-up behavior, no, no dogs. Now, I did for, the, for, for Smash, I spoke to someone that works. Oh, it's volunteer-run, and I spoke to her saying, what kind of, who would bring a dog to a punk show? And she said, well, a lot of the clientele are, are street kids from, from Oakland and Berkeley. And they have dogs, and they bring the dogs, and the dogs go in the, in the pit. And, you know, it's not a great combination. To be fair, we did have a dog here. I don't know yeah, if it's gone did. now. Is it gone? Uh, no, it's, it's gone. gone. Okay. Yeah. We, we scared the dog off. Yeah, the dog's gone. Uh, so, so, yeah, we, as, as I said, Ruth and I were in California. We did, we did a week in L.A. Uh, and a week in, uh, in San Francisco. And... Um, and it was actually Ruth that looked up and found that there was a gig at, at, at Gilman Street. And it's $10 to go to Gilman Street. You have to pay a $2 membership fee. And the only bands, the only, the only bands that, 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 that aren't allowed to play at Gilman Street, the only punk bands that aren't allowed to play at Gilman Street are the ones that are signed to a major label. So when Green Day, a Green Day played at Gilman Street dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Uh, Rancid played at Gilman Street dozens and dozens of thousands of times. Operation Ivy, who were the precursor to, they were the, they were the house band. You know, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of history in this place, but when Green Day signed to Warners, they were no longer welcome at Green Day. They wrote a song about it on Insomniac called 86, which is specifically about getting 86 from Gilman, because that's what get the Gilman regulars call it, you're 86 and you'd sort of spooked me out because I'd said to you, I'm go- we're going to Gilman. And you said, oh, I'd heard it could be a bit edgy there. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it, w- it, was, it was nothing of the kind. No. Uh, I'm, I, I'm not sure we were, I was necessarily welcomed with open arms, but no one batted an eyelid by... And I wasn't even the oldest one there, actually, mm. uh, much to my surprise. But it was strange. It sort of has, has rafters. And I'd look up in the rafters and there'd be... Uh, there was some graffiti for the band Sweet Children. And Sweet Children are the band that Green Day became. They changed their name between uh, 
while they were recording their first EP, they changed their name from Sweet Children to Green Day. And I looked up and I thought, Billy Joe, Billy Joe Armstrong probably wrote that in 1989. This, is, this thing has been up there. And it was a really, really... Mm, I'm not even sure what the word I'd use to describe it. It, it was a really important moment to me to go... I mean, I won't lie, the band... Well, who was that guy we saw? Ruth. Okay, let me give a shout-out to Kevin Nichols. There was a, guy, a, a, a band called the Kevin Nichols Band, which was somewhat pop-punky, mm. uh, or melodic punk, and he was just this, this strange guy singing songs about how rubbish his life was in a Black Sabbath T-shirt, and I quite liked him. Some of the other stuff wasn't quite to my taste, but it was, yeah, it was, it was a real bucket list thing to do for me. I mean, for me, this has been a bucket list thing. But oh, like, oh, shush now. Like, talking to you, Ian. You, you, really, you really need to work on your bucket list, Liam. <laughs> but it has. So thank you to Ian, and thank you to you guys for sticking around. Oh, one thing I forgot. I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to advertise my social media presence, which is hesitant at best. But I am on at Ian Winwood one apparently and also follow the signature brew uh, tap room for the guys they've allowed us to come and speak and uh, so yeah thank you very much thank you guys thanks Haggerston Thank you so much to Ian for coming across to East London and spending an hour with me on stage. Thank you to all the people who came down and made the show such a laugh. Thank you to The Lagan for playing and the Signature Brew Tap Room and Venue in Haggerston uh, for having us. Go buy Ian's book. Ian actually has just put out a piece about the interrupters, if that's your thing, uh, in the Telegraph. So go and read that. Right, that's it for me. We are now on a break for the rest of March. We will be back in early April. When we are back, we'll have some fantastic interviews for you. And if you would like to sponsor one of those episodes for free, uh, just like the Awkwards did, go support them. Link for that band is also in the uh, podcast description of this episode. Uh, you can you can sponsor this show for free by emailing punksinpubs at gmail.com to find out how. Please go rate and review the podcast and go give us a follow on social media. I love you. And don't forget, if you go into a punk show and you see someone fall down, you pick them right back up again. Until early April. Bye-bye. Let's